0: Well, turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures, or scroll in your app to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and go to chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read through the entirety of the chapter, Uh, so if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word, and follow along quietly while I read aloud 2 Timothy chapter 3, start to finish, beginning in verse 1. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses... So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, My steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. good work the word of the lord please be seated a person's last words are important if you've ever been around someone as they are transitioning from this life to the next as they're very very close to dying literally on death's door you know in that room there is a focus, uh, everybody's riveted on what this person is saying because you know they will not be with you much longer. And the words that have always mattered to you, perhaps because they're a loved one or a trusted friend or co-worker, however you know this person, they just seem to matter a bit more now because you know not their days are numbered, but perhaps their minutes are numbered. Similarly, we look at 2 Timothy and we hear the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy very close to dying. Very close to leaving this life and going into eternity with his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so reading 1 Timothy versus 2 Timothy, you can hear a a different tone. There's a sense of finality. There's a a very real awareness in in Paul's voice as he writes to Timothy knowing this is it. This is what I want you to know. This is my last shot, my last chance at writing to you, Timothy. Pay attention. And so 2 Timothy 3, starting out, if you look at how the chapter is divided, maybe in your Bible it's divided into these subject headings as well, but the first nine verses are basically a warning to Timothy. Hey, this is what's going to happen in these last days. You're going to see these things happen that he lists From verses 2 all the way down through verse 5 of the many things that are going to accompany the last days and what people are going to be like. And now what I just want you to do is just read through that list just quietly on your own and when you come across something that you have either seen in your own life or just in the culture and in the world in which we live, do me a favor, just raise your hand. Read through that list and when you see something you're like, yep, I see that, just raise your Your hand, right? It doesn't take very long as you read through that list, right? For people will be lovers of self. You'll be like, and done. (laughs) (laughs) We're naturally concerned for ourselves. Sometimes it might be an arrogant love for self. I think I'm kind of a big deal. Or sometimes it's just, I'm more concerned about me than anyone else. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. You can read down that list and say... Yeah, it's kind of an understatement, what Paul says in verse 1, right? There will come times of difficulty. These are difficult times. So the things that he is telling the Apostle Timothy to look out for, make sure you understand that these things are going to happen, we see them in our life, in our world, in our day and age as well. And what he's really tying this into is not just be careful there's going to be difficult people, but his concern is that false teaching is going to come in and infect and defect the very people of God there at Ephesus that both Paul and Timothy cared for. And he knows it's not going to last, right? He says that in verse 9, but they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as were those of those two men, those two men referring to back to Janus and Jambres that he mentions earlier. But he's saying, look out for false teaching. But when you think about false teaching, when you think about false teachers... Really, they could all be somehow summed up into this one statement that people are substituting their ideas for God's truth. Amen. Their ideas of how the world works. Their ideas of what truth really is. Their epistemology. There's your $1.25 word for the day. The, the study <laughs> of or the science of truth. It's their definition. It's what makes sense to them. They're substituting their ideas for God's truth. And let's not just say they are. Who among us hasn't substituted our ideas for God's truth before? Who among us hasn't said, I know God's word says, but this is different? And we shouldn't ever say that, but we tend to give ourselves maybe a pass. Yeah, I know I've given this advice to somebody else, but I feel like even though I'm in a similar situation, it's different. I know God's word says what it says, but this is a unique situation. This is different, and we tend to substitute our ideas for God's truth. And therefore, if we appeal to logic, I like to, I'd like to think I'm a fairly logical person, rationalism and logic becomes our God. Jesus does not. If we appeal to how we're feeling in the moment, uh, how, what side of the bed we woke up on that day, how what we feel is right, what we feel is wrong, then we ourselves, our own hearts, our own minds become our very God, not the never-changing word of God. And so we do well to heed that warning and not just think it's for all the people outside. What about you? Where are there times where you might be substituting your ideas for God's truth? But then in verse 10, take a look at that. You see Paul talk about Timothy and say, yeah, but you, 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 you're good. You, you're different. Be different. You, however... Have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, even his persecutions. Skip down to verse 14. He says again, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, the scriptures, the word of God. Then verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is, this Greek word, theopnustos. That's the correct mispronunciation of the Greek word there. All scripture is breathed out by God. Theopnustos is a compound word that Paul coined. So you can do that? That's a thing? That's a thing. Paul coined. He linked two words together. God breathed. All scripture is God breathed or breathed out by God. So the Lord himself inspired the Apostle Paul to pen these words in such a way that we would see our Bibles, not just as a sterile book, not even just as a good book, not even just as our favorite book, but as words that literally were breathed out by God. Just like when you put your hand in front of your mouth as you speak, you feel the breath come out. These words were breathed out by God. Amen. And then he says it was profitable for teaching. This is what is right for reproof, showing what is wrong for correction, not just saying you're right, you're wrong, but you could say, this is what is wrong. And here's how we can come around to that, which is right. Teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we can use the word of God, the Holy scriptures to train us in the ways of the Lord. This is how we should walk. This is how we should interact. This is how we should love. We should serve. We should give. We should repent. We should grow. This is how we can do it. For training in righteousness, then finally look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. That word there that's translated in your Bible as complete. If you're an old King James person, you probably see the word perfect. Maybe adequate. That word is only used there in the New Testament. Only there. It's not used elsewhere to describe Jesus Christ himself. It's not used elsewhere to describe the Holy Spirit. It's not used elsewhere to describe spiritual gifts. What can make us complete? What can make us whole? The Word of God. That's how God works, through his Word. He makes us complete. And what we're talking about here today is... Yes, the authority of the scripture of the Word of God, of the Scriptures and the Word of God, but really more specifically, we're talking about sufficiency. Is God's word enough? It was enough for Timothy. Certainly Paul had that faith as he was writing those words, but man, it's been two thousand years. It's a lot of things have changed. Is God's word enough to still make us complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work? And that's why we love biblical counseling. It's not just because that's our shtick. Everybody has a shtick. Everybody has something they do. We do the biblical counseling. It's just kind of what we do. No, no, no. It's because we really believe that the word of God is sufficient, sufficient to help people like you and like me. And also that God has equipped us with the ability to minister it to other people. And so today, what we're going to do with the remainder of our time is I'm going to speak with Dr. Mark Shaw, who's our Director of Counseling here at Grace Fellowship. He has been on staff with us for just over a year. Um, Dr. Mark Shaw uh, recently, he told me not to say this, I'm going to say it. He uh, was recently published, uh, or on um, the Gospel Coalition, just published an article of his. It's called How to Spot and Help an Addict. Uh, that was on either Thursday or Friday. Um, Dr. Shaw has published 22 books, so he's an up-and-coming author. <laughs> Pray that gets off the ground. And he is here serving us in our counseling ministry, leading us, and uh, helping to grow the ministry. And so we're going to talk about biblical counseling. And uh, some of you have submitted questions, which we hope to get to today. But uh, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful that you're on our team. And uh, let's just start out by asking, how did you come to know... How did you come to know the Lord? Like, I'm pretty sure we covered that in the interview process and made sure you were a Christian. Yeah. I just can't remember <laughs> the details of it. So how did you... Yeah. How did the Lord save you? What, yeah, go.
1: The, uh, a significant moment in my life was uh, my grandfather died uh, when I was seven in uh, E-Town, Kentucky. Uh, my family, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and so grew up in Kentucky for about 10 years. And I remember... Thinking about that, probably a year and a half later, uh, being raised in the church and watching my dad, who was kind of evangelistic, I just asked him, you know, I, I realized if I die, I'm going to hell. I mean, it's it's clear, you know, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And so my dad led me to Christ and, um, you know, I confessed my sin and, and repented and asked Christ to forgive me, trusting in him only and was soon baptized by immersion, so.
0: Kind of the rest is history. Yeah. And then how did you get involved with uh, biblical counseling? Is this something you had always set out to do, to be involved in biblical counseling, or is it something that came about through other means? How did you get involved? You know, my
1: dad gave me a book by Dr. James Dobson, and I remember reading it and thinking, I want to be a counselor, but our church at the time didn't have counseling, so I thought, well, you have to get, you know, a secular degree, so I went Got a psychological degree and a master's in in sports psychology, actually, um, and ed psych. And pursued counseling that direction, worked in addiction rehab places. And then um, a man by the name of Ken Libby, who's now with the Lord, he challenged me one day. He said, what kind of counselor are you? And I said, well, I'm a Christian and I counsel, so I guess I'm a Christian counselor. And he said, "Have you ever heard of J. Edward Adams?" And I had not. And he rummaged through his trunk like Yoda, if you've ever seen Star Wars. (laughs) I'll never forget. He's going through his trunk, and he pulls out a book, and he says, "I want you to read this." And it was by J. Adams. And as I was reading it, I thought, "Yes, this is it." You know, the church needs to be doing this biblical counseling. What the text you just read—that needs to be uh, what the local church does. So. I was smitten by it and studied under a guy named Lou Priolo who wrote The Heart of Anger and just a great mentor for me, very indebted to Lou. And then Howard Irick was my next mentor and just kind of pushed me into writing. I didn't really want to write. I mean, that's kind of funny now that, you know, I have so many books. But it's really my wife that edits. She's she's so good at editing that I can write anything and she just makes it sound good. So. (laughs) Thanks.
0: I don't, I don't really want to write, yet somehow I haven't ended up with 22 books. Um, so it's amazing <laughs> how you kind of pulled that off. There's lots of things I don't really want to do, yeah. but they typically then don't uh, get done. Anyway, um, so anyway, so you were – I kind of interrupted you. You said
1: – So uh, that, that got me real, into yeah. biblical counseling, and I realized that this is – I wanted to shepherd the flock. I wanted to be a pastor – who counsels people and helps them to know truth. You know, it's a ministry of the word. I think about Acts 20:20, 20, 20, the public proclamation of the word and the private ministry of the word. It's it's the same source, the Holy Spirit, God's word that brings heart change. So whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's one-on-one or two-on-one in a counseling scenario, uh, that's what I wanted to be. So that's why I pursued seminary and that kind of thing just to be better trained in, in this craft and what I want to do mm-hmm. when yeah. I grow up. When you grow up, right? <laughs>
0: exactly. So when we think about how the Lord has worked through your life and the events that he has orchestrated, which could be meeting somebody like Lou Priolo or yeah. going to seminary, pursuing a doctorate, um, we see all those things and it's like, okay, and you're you're... You're, you're very humble. You know that you are uh, an instrument that is being used in God's hands, that you are a mm-hmm. recipient of his grace. You've, you constantly point that out uh, to me as we're talking about these things. But as we look and we say, okay, that's great and that's humble and that's good and that's Christ-centered, but at the end of the day, this must be what it takes to do biblical counseling, right? I mean, you have your doctorate, so it's not mm-hmm. just you've gone to school. You've gone to, like, school and then school and then school and then more school, mm-hmm. and you've done a lot, so... What would you say to the person who then says, "Oh well, if you're a biblical counselor, that must be what it takes that much studying, that much training, and until then i I really can't be involved. What would you say to that person
1: yeah i I remember getting involved in counseling well before I was ever a pastor or had a seminary degree or anything um and you know, I almost hate that I have the d men and all that because it can really, people look at those credentials and say, well, that's what it takes, like what you're talking about. But really, it takes a submitted vessel who's willing to open the word and speak the truth and love to another person. And anyone can do this. And not everyone, maybe, is as confident or skilled. But I like to pair people up in t- teams of two when they counsel so that they have a, a partner to to work with and to learn from and grow. Uh, so I think that's one way I try to, to demystify it or, or make it a little more accessible to people. But it's really, it's not the the water fountain is kind of how I think about it. We're all water fountains. What people need is the water of the word. Um, and it doesn't matter how beautiful the water fountain looks. I remember the church I pastored in Alabama had the ugliest water fountain you've ever seen in your life, but the best water I've ever tasted came out of that thing. And so it's the water that matters, not the fountain. And so I just think we're all water fountains who uh, are called by God to disseminate his word um, very graciously, lovingly, but truthfully not backing down from what's true uh, to help people to grow.
0: Hold on, Professor. Gotcha. So, uh, in light of what you just said, that that water fountain illustration really is really is helpful. That we're just we're just tools. I mean, how many times in ministry do we end up feeling like a tool, right? So we're just tools that God uses, and to dispense His grace and His mercy to others. Um, and so you would say, if someone came up to you and it's like, you you really believe God can use? Ordinary Christians who love the Lord are familiar with their Bible to help people even through life's darkest times.
1: Yeah, you know we just were going through the Book of Acts, and in Acts four thirteen it describes Peter and John as uneducated, ordinary men, and not you know educated, super extraordinary superhero kind of people, but uneducated common men is is how my Bible reads. And so when I think about that, how encouraging that is uh, to me to know that God used those guys. He can use us as well. And, um, you know, we have even greater opportunities with apps on our phone, Bible apps on our phones and different, you know, tools at our disposal. We can really um, uh, learn and discern the word. I mean, that's what Hebrews 4.12 tells us is that the word of God discerns our hearts, the the motives, and it helps us to uh, be able to see what's really going on in the world, in my own heart, but it helps me to help other people as I seek to to encourage them.
0: Yeah, tell me what is, if someone were to ask you, what is biblical counseling? Like, do you have a do you have like an elevator speech or something? Like, what's your your, your basic answers like when someone says? What even is that? What is biblical counseling? Is that just people who like their Bibles and counsel? Is it the same as Christian counseling? What, how would you answer that
1: question? Yeah, I, 1 Thessalonians 2 8 is the verse I think about, <clears throat> which says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And so I think about biblical counseling, I think that really. Captures it. It's it's the gospel of God. That's what we want to tell people. But it's also our very own lives that we're sacrificing, that we're laying down our lives for people and and encouraging them uh, to hope in Christ. Something that is sure and secure, not something that's going to change. You know, um, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
0: Amen. So is this is is biblical counseling just another? It's kind of like biblical counseling, christian counseling, potato potato. It's just there's some people who are christians and happen to do counseling and love their bibles and there's other people who are not. So it's just a, would you or is there something that causes it to to perhaps stand out from among other counseling philosophies or methodologies?
1: Yeah, there are, you know, there's secular counseling, there's christian counseling and there's biblical counseling and I think of those three as distinct and different in, you know, and there are some overlapping areas, but really with biblical counseling, what we're trying to do is discern the heart, uh, using the scripture, relying on the Holy Spirit to, to speak into someone's heart, to bring change. And not everyone you meet with in counseling is a sinner. There certainly are those situations where you want to help those who are struggling with sin, but there's also sufferers. People who it's not their fault and their circumstances are such that they are struggling because of what they're suffering. And so you want to help those folks as well. So you want to discern. You never want to treat a sufferer like a sinner or a sinner like a sufferer. Um, And there could be elements of both with people that you're meeting with. And there are saints as well. I mean, you know, so some people are doing things and you just want to encourage them in biblical counseling to to continue in the faith and keep their eyes on Jesus. And uh, so I, I think of uh, that when I'm counseling. But biblical counseling is bringing biblical words, biblical definitions to, to bear in the counseling session. And, and it's all about the word. It's all about uh, the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts and minds so that we begin to, to love people and love God in reverse order, love God and love people uh, in, a, in a better way.
0: Now you said uh, words or terminology. Why is why is that so important? Is that just because you're kind of a word guy and you want to make sure it's the right thing? But at the end of the day, hey, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah. you call some like alcoholism or addiction mm-hmm. are two words that we don't find within our Bibles. Yeah, like is that a big deal? Help us understand what you mean. Like making sure that we give them biblical terms.
1: Yeah, words matter, they're, they're signposts, they, they point people in a direction. So if I use alcoholism, for example, as I'm counseling somebody and say, you're an alcoholic, you have alcoholism, uh, and this is, then that diagnosis of the problem using that terminology is going to point them in a direction. And I would even say this, it'll point them in a direction that is anti-Christ, anti-gospel, It does violence to the gospel message because instead what I want to say is uh, you have made choices to be a drunkard and to live in drunkenness, and the Bible's clear about that, not just don't do, don't drink, but it says don't drink because it'll utterly destroy your life. I mean, God doesn't want you to have a destroyed life. So if you'll own this, I've got to, if you'll diagnose the problem and own it, as sin, then I've got a solution. I've got an answer in Jesus Christ who forgives you of sin. I mean, they'll never stand before the judgment of, of God and, and face Mark Shaw. So it really doesn't matter what they think about me. But they need to know the truth from God because that's who they're going to face on judgment day. And I want them to know that the diagnosis of the problem needs to be biblical and that it points them. It, it preaches the gospel to their heart so that they can repent and change and grow and not have an utterly destroyed life. Like Ephesians 5, 18 says, you know, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh That word debauchery is not a word we've used in a sentence. Has anybody used debauchery in a sentence in the last, you know, week, um, month, year? It's not, but the word debauchery means utterly ruined life. And, And that's the path of An alcoholic, if we tell them it's alcoholism and they have this disease, um, then they're never gonna own. I mean, you don't have to repent for a disease, but you do have to repent for choices in your heart, your heart desires, that you want alcohol more than you want anything else, Mm -hmm. God or other people or, you know, whatever. So it is hard. It's not real popular. Not everybody likes to hear that. The rich young ruler walked away from Jesus when he was compassionate. Um, and speaking to his heart, uh, so we are just trying to, to share the same truth in the love of the Holy Spirit, and let God do the work to bring change for His glory and for their betterment.
0: I think something else that comes to mind as you were just talking about that is it just seems if we mislabel, we'll say people as these things, or people have mislabeled themselves as these things. This is an this is the core here is identity. Right? So they're gonna identify themselves. I am use the example of alcoholism. I am an alcoholic. That's just the way I am. Like there's no I can't I can't change it's just who I am. It's 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 in my genes, it's been in my family, it's and there's no real hope because it's just it's just who I am at my core. But in reality, you would say, No, this is actually something different. The Bible calls this drunkenness. This is not an identifier, this is a describer of, of 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 behavior. But it's not who you are. It doesn't, or at least doesn't have to be who you are because of who you are in Christ. Is that, yeah. is that identity? Am I on the right track there with identity?
1: Yeah, I think identity is so uh, foundational to what we do in biblical counseling that people have their identities in all these temporal things rather than in the unchanging character and person of work of Christ. So we definitely want to help people to see that Their desires, their emotions, their football teams, their whatever they're interested in, that's not their identity. Um, That is something that they struggle with or deal with. But they don't have to label themselves with psychological labels, with even biblical labels of an angry man or this or that. Their identity, is that is not who you are. Um, It's what you've done, but it can be forgiven and it can be taken to the cross and you... Uh, can rest assured that your identity is in Him.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. That's helpful. I want to like switch gears a little bit. As you know, we've, uh, we had a social media campaign running for, I don't know, three or four days this week collecting questions from different people on biblical counseling, so I want to go and uh, address some of them. One of them was, how is biblical counseling different from other mental health professions? Do they intersect? Do they parallel? Are they opposed to each other? How would you say... Yeah, I mean, that's just what it is. How is biblical counseling different from other mental health professions?
1: I mean, I'm not here to condemn other mental health professions or people in that. I mean, I have very good friends who serve and work in those ministries. Um, You know, man always looks at the the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so I have people that are serving. Even after the, the service, two people came up after the last service. And talk to me about their in that profession as Christians. And it's really a struggle. It's really hard. So I appreciate being here. I'm very excited to be here and to be just not have to worry about all of that kind of stuff um, that they have to worry about. But biblical counseling is all about uh, diagnosing the heart and giving people solutions. What a lot of people don't understand, and this may sound strong, but um, I've got books and things you can read, um, Mental illness, the field of mental illness, the DSM-5 is kind of the, some call it the Bible of psychiatry, although it's, you know, it's just really their their basic text, if you will. The DSM-5 mental illness, there's no definition that really can diagnose the problem. And so if our hope is in that entity, that field to bring clarity and truth. If you can't diagnose the problem, how can you prescribe the solution? You really can't. And so we know what the problem is. We know people are are sufferers, they're sinners, um, but we can help them with biblical truth that helps them to, to grow and change in a way that's radical And, uh, I mean, I think many of us are sitting in here today as radically changed people with radically changed lives because of the work, the grace of of Christ in our hearts and in our lives. And so our confidence can't be in those fields and those areas. Are there some intersecting points? Yes. There's descriptive psychology, which can be very helpful. just describing behavior. No problem there prescriptive psychology is where I, I have more of an issue because when you prescribe how a person should change and you tell them to do, uh, unbiblical things that, that contradict the word of God, then that's where I have an issue. So it's, it's only when what they're telling people to do contradicts the word of God and and pushes people, points them away from Christ, away from the gospel. That's when I get kind of amped up about it. Gotcha. I do get amped up. You, what's that? I do get amped up. You strike me as an now. as an amped
0: up guy. Um, speaking of amped up, so this next question uh, this next question actually comes from uh, someone at the Fort Thomas campus. So it, you'll you'll notice a depth. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, you know, there'll there'll be a difference, and then we'll get back to the other ones that are super average. But uh, I'm glad you're sitting. So this question was: uh, How does biblical counseling respond? to addiction. Mm. So I uh, read recently, uh, I forget if it's Charleston or Huntington, West Virginia, is the overdose capital of the nation. Mm. That's just down the road from us. Certainly our region, our area is not immune to this at all. You see all the lawn signs of Northern Kentucky hates heroin. Uh, I know people who have overdosed uh, even in our own church uh, or related to people in our own church that devastates the family. Of Mm. course, it's death, it's suffering, it's hard. Um, how does biblical counseling respond to, I think I, I think I, I can call it an epidemic, this epidemic mm-hmm. of addiction that we're seeing?
1: Yeah, I'm mean, I'm excited. I mean, Friday night, I'm going to teach at our CDT on this, Biblical Insights into Addiction. And the spoiler is, you know, Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35 will be the text. But there are so many things that God's word helps us to see in the heart of man. And it's interesting when I watch documentaries about Huntington or different areas of the, of the country or even the world, um, people say what's in the scripture, and they don't even know that they're saying it. And as I'm watching, I'm just, I'm just in awe of God's word and how true it is and how it diagnoses and knows the heart. And so with addiction counseling, I mean, um, people think of it pr- purely as a physical problem Uh, more than as a a spiritual problem. But it's interesting, even in the secular world, secular people think that addiction is a spiritual problem. Um, They they will say that. Not everybody, but 93% of them will say it's a spiritual problem, but that any God will do. So you can find any God, and and any God will help you. Well, it's not working. We had 70,000 overdose drug deaths last year alone. In one year, that's more deaths than in the 10 years, almost 10 years of the Vietnam War. So one year of deaths, and, and it's only increasing. And so there, it is an epidemic, and I'd love for our church to be an answer to that, to be able to say, hey, take your, your addicted loved one, bring them here to our church, and we'll help them. And not everybody's willing. Some people, you know, biblical counseling doesn't always work with everybody, but you've got to be willing Uh, you you know, and willing to do the hard work in any program you do, but our program is different in that we point people to Christ. Mm -hmm. There's only one true God. There's only one true higher power and not any higher power. They're not all equal. Mm -hmm. Well, they're all equal with themselves, but they're not all equal to Christ.
0: And and that's helpful and that's exciting, but it sounds a little bit like I'll just put it this way, like, take this Bible verse and call me in the morning, right? Mm. So this person who's had this had this long <laughs> pattern of addictive behavior yeah. in their life, I'm not saying Christ can't change that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the Bible can't help. But how does biblical – this seems to be – there seems to be a lot of things at work. Granted, the the motivator, the impetus behind their behavior is – idolatry or simple heart or sinful mind, but what about what has now become the reality, the symptoms, the chemical dependency, et cetera, et cetera? How do, we, how do we go from there?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, once you get through the physical part, I mean, people are sober for six months, three years, and then they go right back to their substance of, of choice. So it's, it demonstrates it's not always a physical thing because three years, you're not having any physical cravings. You're just choosing to go back Uh, to your substance of choice. But I think that's where discipleship comes in and community groups and that kind of thing, which is what I'd really like to see here. We're starting tomorrow night from 6 to 9 p.m., what I call C3, Conversations, Coffee, and Counseling. And it's just open area where people sign in uh, and meet, sit down with different people in our rooms. We have as many as 12 to 15 uh, volunteer counselors in there. And they can come in and sit down and in the cafe upstairs here at Florence. They'll uh, go to a different part of the cafe, sit down with someone, and have a conversation, have coffee. And it might turn into counseling, usually does. Um, But that's what we're doing on Monday nights from 6 to 9. Just as an entry point for anybody who's struggling or or needs help, we want to offer that to people. So uh, I'm real excited about that. But then I think with the – so if an addict came to that – And then we had something for them on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. Got them into a community group, which is so important, and got them in the fabric of the church. Um, In time, discipling them, uh, it wouldn't be just take one Bible verse and and call me in the morning. It would be a pattern of disciple-making and accountability to help them. But they're going to struggle. I mean, they're going to mess up. But our job is to, to faithfully... Dispense, teach the Scripture, and to walk with people, giving up our own lives uh, for them, like First Thessalonians two eight talks about. So, I think it can be done, and mm-hmm. you know, but it is hard work. Yeah, and you've this
0: is an area of of uh, passion or expertise mm-hmm. for you. You've done a lot of work when it comes to addiction ministry. Um, I know our advanced track for counseling and substance training is on on that very subject of addiction. <coughs> What is your like take us behind the veil? What is your vision, hope, big hairy audacious goal for Grace Fellowship Church? Yeah. I mean, we've got a you know, a campus at Fort Thomas, a campus in Florence, soon to have a campus in Independence. Mm-hmm. What might those be? Yeah, what's your vision? What's your hope that they would be what as far as reaching people uh, particularly in this area of addiction.
1: Well, we need we need all of y'all. That's what I say in the South, all of y'all. Do you know that phrase all of y'all? Yeah. Um, all of y'all. I learned it. And, um, and really, you know, say to the person next to you on the left or right, look to the person left or right and say, you are the hope of the world. Would you do that? You're the hope of the world.
0: You are the hope of the world. <laughs> you're <laughs> the hope of the world.
1: Amen. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of sad to think about. They said more
0: than you are the hope of the world. It doesn't yeah. take that long to uh, say Yeah, to say, to say that. you're the hope of they're the just world. Talking about lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> they're just yapping. But the... Uh, you know, you think about it, but we really are. The people in this room are the hope of the world. And it's going to take everybody, every, you know, follower of Christ to, to help this epidemic of addiction. That's just one thing. But uh, even just the hurting souls that are out there uh, in, in every area of mental illness and mental health. Uh, so we need people involved. And in counseling, what I'm trying to do is create different ways for you to be involved. You don't have to be a counselor, you can be a co-counselor, you can be a disciple maker. I like to have people sit in counseling with me and then they go and disciple my counselee through a, a workbook or through some material that I give them, help them to work that out later in the week. So I need teachers, I need observers. We want people just to sit in and observe counseling. And of course, we want members of the church, people who are committed to community group Um, And committed to the church and and foundations, the CDT this weekend is a great way to get training um, for biblical counseling. But we want to interview you and help you and uh, help you to read certain books and and just equip the body to do the work of ministry. So uh, that's what gets me excited is thinking about at all three of these campuses, having a place to send people uh, for help. And hope is um, is just it's just wonderful, but it's going to take greater people than Mark Shaw. I can't counsel all of Kentucky and Cincinnati, right. yeah, or Grace Fellowship.
0: It's true. So along those lines, what are the qualities or qualifications needed to be a biblical counselor?
1: Yeah. Well, I talked about membership and being in a community group, uh, going to CDT. I mean, those are some of the things that we have. Um, that we would like people to do just to get started. Um, but, I, you know, in Scripture, you don't read that people have to have a seminary degree to do biblical counseling. I mean, it's just real people helping people with real problems using your Bible, as Pastor Brad talks about. So that's what we're trying to do is equip the, the, all the saints for the work of ministry. Now, you've got to be a saint. You've got to be born again. Um, But you can do biblical counseling. A lot more people can do it in here than probably realize that they can do it. And they're doing it on the phone. They're doing it through social media. They're doing it at their kitchen table or wherever. uh, They're doing biblical counseling.
0: And if somebody is hearing you talk about this and maybe their heart is being stirred, but just at the end of the day, they're still scared. uh, And it's not not just buried in fear of, I can't do it, but it's like, what if I break the broken? Like, there's, here's someone who's mm-hmm. already suffering, already in need of help. What if I say the wrong thing and then they kind of back away? What would you say to the person who, they want to get involved, but they just, they don't want to mess up and they're just kind of scared? What would you say to that person?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good, healthy fear uh, to be careful about what you say and how you say it. I mean, I want winsome people. I want people that are loving and, and compassionate. Um, but a lot of people that come in for counseling, if we're talking about addictions and that kind of thing, they're so low that they need an encouraging voice. They need a truthful voice. They need somebody to come in and help them and, and to be gripped by the gospel. So, um, so, yes, you want to be more equipped and ready. But you're never, ever totally ready. I mean, I'm oftentimes 10 minutes into my session praying, saying, oh, God, I'm overwhelmed. Please help me. It doesn't matter how many classes you've taken, how many books you've read. It doesn't matter. You're relying on the Holy Spirit to speak through you as a water fountain to, to give them what they need. And, yes, you want to know, you know, you want to know the Scriptures. You want to interpret Scripture well. The hermeneutics have to be there. Um, you know, you don't want to say, well, I can do all things in Christ, so let's lift this car over our head. That's not proper biblical, inter- you know, hermeneutic uh, interpreting Scripture correctly. That's just not it. So it is interpreting Scripture and knowing that, and that's why you get trained and why you learn and grow. But um, but a lot of people can do this who are sitting on the sidelines. You know, they're up in the stands, they're cheering the team on, but we need them to, to put on pads and a helmet and get on the field and play the game with us Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and I think we're in a unique position at Grace Fellowship to be able to not just call people to not just say you know have people say put me in coach I'm ready to play just to make sure we get it back to baseball but to uh, also say that we're able to not just say jump on in but then say we can train you to do that we can walk alongside you you won't have to do that alone I mean, I don't think, I don't know if you understand the benefit or the blessing that we have of being able to have uh, counseling and discipleship training, CDT, right here in our own backyard. So that's something that I used to, I met several of you in Lafayette, Indiana, long before I moved here to Northern Kentucky because I would fly out there all by my lonesome and take biblical counseling training many, many, many years ago, but it used to take like A flight and a hotel and making sure I had that whole week available and going to Lafayette, Indiana in February where you look around and it's dead cornfields. You're reminding yourself there is a God and he loves me and this is good. (laughs) And you're hearing these truths, but then you go back to your church and you're the only one. I I was part of a great church, but I was like the only one who was into it. So you're then there back by yourself. Here, you can learn biblical counseling principles, be equipped to help someone. And then we're not just going to say, be warm and be filled, or just sink and swim. We'd love to walk alongside you. Dr. Shaw would love to provide help for you as you want to help others. And I think biblical counseling, it's a silly illustration, but... So, I've said this to you before. My, my wife and I, we've, we've been on several cruises. We like to cruise, and lots of people go, oh, I could never do that. And usually what they're thinking of is like one aspect of a cruise. Like, oh, I could never just Big smoke-filled casino. It's like, okay, well, that's not the whole ship, right? There is an aspect of that, but it's not just a a, a thousand-foot floating ashtray. It's not really what it is. Or they're like, oh, I could never do that. Or it's like, usually what they're doing is they're picturing one slice, one picture. Is there? Is that a reality? Yeah, but you might, you might actually enjoy it and realize that's just a small slice of the greater experience. Now, counseling's not. (laughs) The moral of the story is counseling's like a cruise. A lot of food. Not true but I do think more people would, I don't think cruising is for everyone, but I think it's for more people than probably realize it. I think counseling, not for everyone, but I think it's for more people than probably realize it. And they're just picturing one little slice. And, oh my gosh, what if the person gets really angry at what I'm saying because I'm presenting truth that they're not ready for? That could happen. That doesn't happen every time, but it might happen and God will give you grace. What if somebody asks me a question and I don't know and they're looking for hope and I can't give them that hope? I've made things worse. You might feel that way, But you know what? The more you do it, the more you're prepared and you realize what the Bible says is true, there's nothing new under the sun. You start to hear repeat questions. And that which you didn't know how to answer last time, you now know how to answer because you've asked. Or you've told the person, you know what? I don't have an answer for you. God's word does. I'm going to do my best to find it and point you to it. And you give them hope and you give them encouragement. I don't think counseling is for everyone. But it's probably for more people than actually Realize it, and our CDT is a great opportunity for you to explore that. Just to see, might this be for me? Is this something that the Lord is calling me to engage with? And so, I wanted to close by, well, inviting our worship teams back up to the stage because we're about to close in prayer and then sing together. But I wanted to close by reminding you that that CDT counseling, and discipleship training is taking place uh, a week, less than a week from now. This coming Friday, it starts. And that uh, registration closes tomorrow. so you have all day today and all day tomorrow, and if you serve in any capacity, any capacity, or you've never and or you've never been to CDT ever here at Grace Fellowship Church, we have a tremendous discount and a discount code that you can put in uh, that takes, I think, 50 percent off the total price, which is a great opportunity for you to kind of kick the tires and see if this is something that the Lord might work in you and through you to help. Other people. So I'm glad that you got to be here today, that we got to be here with you, sharing with you hope and help through the Bible, and hopefully giving you an opportunity to consider whether this ministry is something that uh, is for you to engage with. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful not just for who you've brought to us in Dr. Shaw, who's a tremendous asset to our team, but ultimately who you've brought to us in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh that dwelt among us, Lord. Help us understand how to minister him to people in some of their darkest, darkest times where they need hope and they need help that could only be provided through your word. Stir the hearts of your people even now. Do what Mark and I cannot do, and that is continue laying upon people's hearts and minds if this is something for them, to have them maybe check it out, to talk to Dr. Shaw, to perhaps attend our counseling Uh, conference and have an opportunity to see what does it look like to help someone with God's word. So do that, we pray, not for our glory, but for yours. In Christ's name, amen.